Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Welcome back to the show, Francis. And thank you for tuning back in, listening, supporting the show, talking about the show with your friends. I'm excited to share with you that I will be going on a mission trip to Israel next month. I'm hoping to do some narrating and interviewing while I'm there. I also hope there will be some time for me to put on a concert for women. It's been a very long time since I've been to Israel, and I feel like I need to go. I need to be there. And I am grateful to my husband, who is going to hold down the fort so I can do this. I am open to hearing suggestions for topics, as well as you volunteering your story for the show. Because I will be traveling, I need to start prepping the episodes in advance. Since Hanukkah, I wrote three new songs, one of them titled Dear Soldier, and I feel compelled to sing, even though that's something I shut out of my life for many different reasons. I was just a recording artist, but things have changed, and I think I have to try again. This is the Jewish Coffeehouse podcast. Check out the excellent episodes on Chochmat Nashim, Intimate Judaism, and Orthodox Conundrum. Here we go. Welcome to the show, dear friend, Sarah Rosner. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. This is definitely something new for me being on a podcast, but I am so happy to join you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your story, your professional background, and your religious background. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Cary, North Carolina, right outside of Raleigh, the capital. My parents moved down to North Carolina from New York. They both grew up in Great Neck. That's where they met in high school. And they fell in love, kind of high school sweethearts. My father had a more reformed Jewish background, my mother, a conservative Jewish background. And Great Neck, many of you know of that area, has always been highly Jewish. So even the public schools there was, I don't know what percentage, who knows, like 70 plus percent Jewish when they were in school. They, they did their college degrees and my father was looking for a professorship after doing many years of school. And they found Cary, North Carolina, where he had his first professorship at NC State. So I grew up in the South with an older brother and then many years later, uh, a much younger sister, same parents. And it was different. I was brought up with everyone celebrating Christian holidays and asking me where I go to church. And that was my upbringing. But I give my mother a lot of credit because I really find my spiritual connection comes from my mother's deep spirituality. And she always lit Shabbat candles. And we would always have Friday night meals. We would go to some form of service. Sometimes there'd be services in our own home. The community was so, so small and buried, but my mother was very strong in her identity, which gave me a very strong connection to our identity. And 
would celebrate, you know, most of the holidays in, in some way or another. I knew of the holidays, but I was not even aware of Jewish orthodoxy until my college years. I went to public school in the South and I didn't fit in so well. Like I was a different kind of kid. I was shy. And I also had a, a special talent that at the age of three, I started playing violin. As I got older, my mother, who's a visual artist, fine artist and graphic designer, she has passed five years ago now, but she was very talented and very much into the arts and music. So I got started on my kind of music education. And by the time I was in high school, she said, well, why don't we find a special high school for you? There's a performing arts college and, and high school attached to it in the state of North Carolina. And I applied and I got in and I spent three years at a conservatory in North Carolina, where I lived there. And it feels like a lifetime ago, really, that <laughs> so much has happened since then. But I, you know, was very much into my violin playing and performing and practicing. Anyone who's a musician or artist knows how many hours goes into that. That was a huge part of my life. But then as I graduated, I was not so sure I wanted to go purely into the arts. Like I realized that a lot of artists live a little bit of a lonesome life in a sense that they are, you know, working on their art alone a lot of the time, whether it's practicing or performing or whatever they're doing. It's not a family kind of lifestyle for many. And it's also a very pressured lifestyle. So I decided to go to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I got a nice scholarship there. I applied to other universities. But I said, you know, what? I, you know, I, I can do this without having any college debt. So it sounded like a good plan. And it, UNC has had a, a good reputation as a university. My first week at the university, I met my husband. I actually knew whatever university I would go to, I wanted there to be a strong Jewish presence, like not necessarily population, but a Hillel or something very active because I wanted to reconnect and connect with others who are Jewish because at the art school that I was in, there were very few and far between. It was very hard to celebrate any kind of holiday or connect with others that had any Jewish connection. And I felt like that was lacking. And I was really looking for a college experience where I could reconnect with Jews and people. So um, my first week at the Hillel House, this tall, good looking man, like is <laughs> kind of there and helping out and kind of knows the ropes there. And they ha always have a Friday night Shabbat dinner organized by the students. And I stayed for the Shabbat dinner. That's how we kind of got to initially know each other and start dating. And that was also my introduction to Jewish orthodoxy because he was very involved with some orthodox rabbis in the area. He grew up in Long Island and he went to yeshiva growing up, but he was also kind of searching his own identity of where he wanted to fit and was very connected in the area. And he and immediately connected me to rabbis in the area a year after 
I entered college, a Chabad house opened up right on campus, and I got very involved with the Chabad family there. So I was like on my journey, learning bit by bit by bit, by the time I was a junior and had gone to some more learning programs, I decided I was going to keep Shomer, Shomer Shabbos and I was going to become more observant. So it was this whole transformation that took a few years. And my family was like, not so sure about what was happening <laughs> with me. And I think a lot of Bali Juba stories, that you, there's definitely stories about how the family reacts or responds to these changes within the family. And it was definitely tricky at times. I was very blessed to have a positive and supportive mother through it all. Like she even recaptured her kitchen to be really strict. She's like, of course, you need to be able to eat in my home. And other members of my family felt a little differently about it. But <laughs> it was it was a process. And that was my journey. And after I graduated from UNC, I was doing a lot of music teaching. And then that year, my husband, Jeff, and I got married. Tell us what brings us here to your story today. I really think that my story, it's not just a one-time one event or one-time trauma or a challenge that I've gone through over the past 20 years of marriage. I've actually had to come face-to-face -face with many major traumas and challenges. And Can you list I think that's, yes, that's what, I mean, it really shapes me. I actually, this year, I went through date by date, year by year, listing what trauma I had at what time and for how long, because I've gone through therapists and healing and different therapies. And I know at this point, it probably sounds a little strange of like, what is she talking about? But I will start off by saying a little over a year ago, my son Yossi, as a teenager, battled brain cancer for just about one year. It was the most aggressive kind of cancer where we had to live in the ICU for most of the year. And he sadly passed from that illness. So that obviously a huge major shift in my life and trauma challenge that my family had to face. But even going back before that, just to have kids was very challenging for me. I knew that I wanted to, to build a beautiful Jewish family. Like I had all these new beautiful concepts about life and family and spirituality. The world's my rainbow, kind of. <laughs> you know, I had, you know, I met so many families over my journey of becoming Bali Juba that I just thought were so beautiful. And you have this vision in mind what your family is going to look like. Well, even from the start, I had challenges. My, my oldest, our first son, was an extremely traumatic, life-threatening birth that left me with many scars. So I was, it was an emergency C-section. And so that came out of nowhere. I thought, you know, my I, you know, another part of my upbringing was my mother was very holistic and natural and everything she did. And I had these visions of childbirth and, did not go any anywhere which way as planned. So so I had to face being a new mother and then also just kind of that traumatic experience and 
I was very young at the time and I figured, you know what? Okay. I could still have children. That's just like a, a one-time thing. I'm going to, you know, plow ahead once I, you know, took me a while to recover. I was still excited to build a family, you know, actually between my oldest and, and Yassi, who's the one that battled brain cancer, I did have a miscarriage. So more kind of traumas. And I, you know, I've had multiple miscarriages and those things are really not talked about so much in the community, which, you know, I feel like life experiences that women go through need to be more upfront, like there needs to be more conversations about them, because these are definitely life transforming experiences and traumas in their own right. I did become pregnant with my my sweet son, Yessi. He was a very big baby, and I was very excited to have him. And I was looking forward to hopefully a natural birth. And yet again, it was an extremely challenging experience where I ended up with an, an emergency C-section and other complications. And I was like, whoa, this childbirth thing is like not so easy for me. <laughs> so here I was with, with two small boys and a very busy husband working full time and trying to physically recover myself and, and care for my kids. And we lived in a, a very small Jewish, we settled in North Carolina at the time in Raleigh. And it was a very small community. There weren't a lot of people to call on. I did build some really beautiful friendships down there, but I did not have a whole lot of support while I was going through that. And then fast forward a bit, again, still kind of young and hopeful and being really wanting to at least have a, ch a girl in our, in our household. <laughs> so we tried again and again, another extremely traumatic experience that really did a lot of uh, physical damage to my body and took me about 10 years to recover from. So just having children was not what I thought it would be. There's a whole lot of loss there with just my hopes and dreams of having a larger family. So that's the beginning of my kind of challenging and trauma stories. And then just to quickly hit other points is that my mother died at a young age from cancer. And then during that time, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which I battled for an entire year while taking care of three children, still young and in the home. And then a few years after that, and through COVID, obviously, everyone struggled through COVID. My sweet Yessie, he was a different kind of kid. He needed my Yessie needed a lot of attention in different ways. So he was one I put a lot of energy into, and all of a sudden he comes home from yeshiva in 10th grade where he was having really an amazing time, and it was such a good fit for him educationally and socially. And he comes home and he starts having really strange symptoms of not being able to walk straight and slurring his speech and then all of his function going very quickly, and I rush him to the hospital at that point, he could not even walk. He was in a wheelchair. I had no idea what was going on because it was hard to get any doctor to look at him during COVID. It was the, the Omicron variant when that was at its peak. And it was one thing after the next where they put him through a whole range of tests and MRIs. And my, my sweet son, it was, it was very, very heart wrenching and traumatic. And within a week, he had a biopsy and a diagnosis of 
a glioma in his brain stem, which they said would be terminal. They had no cure for it. So here was kind of like, you want to call it the cherry on top. I don't know. Like, just, you know, after so many life traumas to have my child, which, you know, I dedicate my life to my children. I was never a full-time worker because I, I wanted to be home for my children. You know, I'd always have jobs here and there and part-time, but to any mother, whether they're a full-time worker or not, like your children are everything to you. And it was beyond heart-wrenching to um, get this diagnosis and feel like, you know, I'm in the middle of a grinder, which I have no control over and I have to fight for my baby's life. So I was living in the hospital for, for months on end at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. That became my new home and the Philadelphia community, you know, thank God everyone's so kind and helpful would fill in with with meals or running errands or whatever had to be done. And my my closest friends, they really went above and beyond to help me out. It was an extremely intense year that I even brought him home for part of the year and ran an ICU room from my home. When I look back at that stage, I look at it's it's kind of a strange feeling. I I almost feel like I climbed Mount Everest and I wasn't even a mountain climber. They were just kind of like, up oh, here, you know, you got to, you, you face this challenge. Here's your challenge. Here's a massive mountain that goes to the, to the sky and back and you're going to have to do that. And I just took one step at a time and I don't know how I did any of what I did because I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor, but I learned how to be an ICU nurse. I learned how to do everything it took to, to care for my Yessi, which was a lot because he was completely non-functional from the time of his diagnosis. It was very intense. And I look back on that year and it, it still doesn't make sense to me. He died in my arms in the hospital and it was very heartbreaking, very, very heartbreaking. No one thinks this is going to happen to them. They hear of stories on the news or TV or radio, whatever they're hearing, like, oh, these things happen in the world, but you don't think this is going to happen to my family. This isn't, you know, this is not going to happen to to me or my child. Like we, we sometimes feel like we live in this safety bubble. Like, you know, I'm okay. You know, it's, you know, other people might have that kind of problem, you know, which really rarely ever happens and it's not going to happen to me. It's pretty wild when I look back at, my journey and life story with my family. And I've had to spend the last year adjusting to having one child in Shemayim and two children down here on earth that I need to pay close attention to and care for. Do you feel like you have an identity outside of being the mother of Yessi who died so tragically and painfully? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was a, a person, a whole person before he was born and before he lived on this planet. And through that, I absolutely have an identity. I think that for a lot of parents that have the trauma of lo losing a child, they feel like other people have branded them. I've heard this from other podcasts, you know, kind of like, 
the scarlet letter A. Like I'd have some scarlet letter on my head saying like, oh, this is the mother that lost a child, you know, and that that is somehow my new identity. And people are kind of scared to know how what to do with that. But I am a fully whole person. Do I have scars and wounds and heartbreaks? Of course, I'm human. And, you know, this is now part of my life that I carry Yessi with me inside me in my heart and in my soul. And he's, you know, not walking the earth, but I'm still fully a mother. And I would say even for mothers who only say have one child and lose that child, they're still fully a parent and a mother and a father. My identity has not changed in that sense. My experience of the world has changed. I heard you say something along the lines of Yessi's first year sites coming up and you had this beautiful initiative of learning for 30 days, which I am honored to have participated in. You said people were saying, oh, it's already the first year site. Wow. I can't believe it's, it's so fast. How did that happen? And you were so offended, right? You were offended <laughs> by that kind of reaction. Yeah. This has been painfully dragged out for me. Right. You're right. In the sense that people's experiences vary depending on you know, what their life situation is and your perception of time and someone else's life. For me, the the process of that first year was so painful and grueling. Like, it was actually very heartbroken at first. Obviously, you know, right after the passing of Yessi was certainly traumatic and and heartbreaking. And I was in a deep state of grief at that time. And through the whole year, just, you know, waves of grief. This is the human process of having a, a loss so close to you. We grieve. That's normal and natural. And it's a painful process. And I kind of felt so many people were involved with Chesed and Tefilos and so many good initiatives while Yessi was battling the cancer. And even though I was, you know, I could talk a bit about that at some point, but I was huddled with him right next to him in the hospital room or at home. But I still had this sense of like the community was surrounding me. Everyone is like trying to give me their, their own hug, sense of love in some way that I'm being supported and then after his passing, I almost felt like everyone just like disappeared off the face of the earth. Like, okay, she'll figure this out now. <laughs> like, and I'm like, and that was like the most painful time. The work of caring for him was strenuous. And I pushed myself to the edges of my being to care for him. But the, the heart, you know, the work of the, the heartbreak and to heal and to mourn and grieve is even more painful. And people really need that love and support at that time, especially if it's someone so super close to you, like usually obviously a child or a young spouse, or even if a spouse that you've been married to for 30, 40 years, but that person was so close to you that the the grieving process is very, very intense. The, the amount of emotion that goes into it, the amount of 
pain and physical. It's a, it's actually a physiological process that goes into grieving. And I really try hard not to judge anyone. And one of the things I recognize is that everyone grieves differently and that everyone needs different things. And I am a highly social person. I love a lot of human contact and talk and touch and notes. Like I need that to me is comforting. And I felt, you know, I did reach out to my good friends and close people afterwards to be like, Hey, you want to meet up? Let's, let's go for coffee or a walk or something because I knew I needed that. And they were happy to do that with me and for me. But I felt like a lot of people were, I was just kind of like terrified to get close to me. <laughs> they were just like, oh my gosh, that's just so crazy. I don't even know how to respond or react. And, you know, it just kind of trickled off the, the face, the radar of everyone. And also, you know, kind of, I got this sense that people were like, oh, okay, the story's over with, which as we both know the story is definitely not over with. I'm still processing a lot of trauma and grief and emotions during that time. And, you know, trying to reconnect with myself, with the creator, with my husband, with my children, trying to re, you know, rework and organize my life that got shattered. You're a very spiritual person. How did you stay on course with that? And you're still extremely spiritual and you view everything through the experience of Hashem and Torah? I do. I do. I I feel like without Hashem, without Torah, you have nothing to hold on to. I almost, and I've heard this from other grieving parents who, you know, are highly spiritual and religious, and they have the same sentiment that when people come up to them and say, oh, well, how do you still believe in a God? You know, how do you still this? How are you still so connected? Don't you feel like, how, how do you do that? And our answer, I feel like it's not just my voice, but other mothers' voices kind of want to say, you know, how would you do it without a belief? <laughs> like, it, it seems much harder to process something so extremely traumatic when you have no customer service to complain to right and there's there's no customer so there's no one in charge it's just life is a free-for-all and kind of you know chaos theory of you know it just you get what you can you know got you you know the idea of like well maybe you know some people including some relatives of mine believe well yeah i believe in a god but they're not really involved in my life there's no hashgacha purchase there's no divine providence and i i can't believe in a god that does not have providence over our lives and i feel like that's such a key part of my belief and my healing process to know that God is in charge and is controlling every string, every moment of our lives and days. So back to our conversation a few weeks ago or whenever that was, you said people not recognizing how long and how deep of a grieving process this is, how the story started almost after the passing when everyone trickled away based on what you've been saying it feels like this disvalidation 
when we just had this on a family chat, someone posted their children and everyone's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this baby is one years old already. And I posted <laughs> yeah, something that's along. Perception. So I, I was saying it, it's it's quick for for everyone but the parents. The parents woke up every night Absolutely. and every morning. Right. Who's the one holding the colicky baby, right? Like <laughs> it disvalidates the experience of how long that year took or how long it takes. And, and then you said something that now with the war, everyone is sort of on that same train of experiencing life. Like, welcome, welcome to, you know, my yeah, welcome how right, I experience welcome. life now. Correct. Like, kind of welcome to the trauma world. For me, trauma and hardship and challenge, it's almost kind of like, old hat in the sense of like, oh, yeah, I've seen this many times before. And I know I have my toolbox, you know, I've had to learn a lot of tricks of the trade or whatever you want to call it. I've had to grow in so many ways and learn a lot of things about dealing with trauma and tragedy and grief. And I have a little more idea of what it feels like to be in that zone. And I also have more of a toolkit and my personal toolkit to go to like, okay, how do I now respond to this? And obviously, October 7th was extremely traumatic for the entire Jewish nation and affected hundreds upon thousands of people and all the, the captives and people murdered and just horrendous. So I felt like I was experiencing yet another layer of grief. Like I still had my personal grief and yet I was now experiencing a national grief and also just hearing other people's stories of how their own personal experience or how they're coping or they're feeling. And I've had to learn personally how to protect myself from too much emotion at once. And I would not go on social media and look up every story and look up every, you know, visual thing. And it's just not healthy. And that's what a lot of the professionals would say is like, don't get yourself too involved in the details and all the gruesome and horrendous stories. Like, you know, you need to go to certain tools. Like this is how to cope in a healthy way with trauma. And for me, that was kind of old hat, sadly. <laughs> Not that I chose my life to go down this course. Obviously, that's Hashem's plan. But I... You know, I was kind of like, okay, here we are. And now a lot of other people are experiencing what it's like to be in the midst of trauma and in the midst of, you know, not knowing what's going to happen the next minute, the next day. It was, I think, a different experience than many people had at the time. I'd like to go into a sticky, perhaps, area. You lived in Chop. And there's a beautiful Bikur Cholem room and program. You were probably intimately, I'm saying intimately because I can't see anything more intimate than having your child with you in, in the ICU. You've met and established relationships with other mothers and fathers. I, I'm curious to see what the dynamic was at the time, but also after his passing, the thoughts of comparing, the thoughts of who has it worse, maybe at the time of the illness, 
and after. Did any of those relationships continue? Did they expire because, you know, you can't go back there or you're not a sense of support to those parents? And I know we had in the community another horrible tragedy in the Seaman family where there it was a horrifically quick passing of a very young child, Liana Seaman. And you were there as a support system during that week and some. Yeah. So can you talk to that a little bit? Right. So living in CHOP is like really living on a different planet. I don't have any other way of describing it. It's just people's lives day in and day out. You're living in a different zone. Living in a hospital and in an intensive care unit I witness things daily that most people are not aware of if they are not working in that field, if they are not a doctor, nurse working in a trauma center, a hospital, and seeing what goes on with people of all ages, but especially children, it's it's very emotional and heartbreaking where children are suffering so much and hooked up to so many machines and so many diseases and illnesses and problems. And it, you're, you're living in a different world there. And thank God for the Jewish nation and our concept of community and chesed and connection that we have organizations such as Chai Lifeline and Bikor Cholim to be a support system for us. So there would be the, the kosher pantry on the first floor. And a lot of moms would meet there to grab a bite, to have a cup of coffee, to pull something out of the, the fridge or the cabinet, you know, being like, oh my gosh, I have not eaten in 10 hours. I better grab something. <laughs> and we would form connections. And we did form friendships, obviously, in an unusual circumstance and place. And you did mention the same in family and that they had, sadly, a very fast traumatic experience ending in a death that, you know, I was living in the hospital for so long and, and they were only there a few days. And, you know, that ended so quickly. But she was actually only a few doors down from where Yessi and I were. So it, it did get very close to home as I would see, you know, doctors and nurses running in and out. And there's constantly lights flashing of code red, code blue, code this, you know, it's, it's a different life experience. And I think you once told me from talking to someone who went through such an extreme trauma with a child that it felt like a personal holocaust to them. And I would second that, that the experience of always being on high alert and watching out for my son and advocating for him and caring for him and lights flashing and beeping constantly 24-7, I, I do feel like it was in some ways a personal holocaust. It was definitely not a normal whatever that means, or a natural or healthy way to live, but I did what I had to do. And just as people during the Holocaust created connections and friendships to support each other, so do 
the parents and children and in, in shop hospital form connections and friendships to support each other. And I do still keep in touch with with some of them, obviously not in the same way. I don't live there. And Baruch Hashem, some of these children have improved and gotten better and healthier. And I still keep in touch with some and, and some I don't keep in touch with. But you do mention a very kind of hot topic of comparison. And I always Well, I I can't say I've always thought this way, but through learned experience, I now know that it is never healthy to compare. It's just never healthy to compare. We do that. It's part of the human condition that we like comparing ourselves or situation or children with others, but it's never going to go anywhere good. I'm telling you that. It's it's not going to end happy or healthy or it's not going to be uplifting. If I, you know, feel jealous, well, how come that one kids got better and, and mine didn't? Or how come, you know, this happened and for them and, and it didn't for me? Or how come, you know, this person didn't have to live through such a grueling year and and I did, you know, like... Where is that going to go? It's not going to go anywhere good mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It's just not good energy. But I think people do, even even when they think they're being helpful or kind, you know, will say things such as, oh, I know what you're going through, or I know what that feels like. And really, each person's experience is so unique that even saying that is not helpful. Like, you know, you think, oh, well, shouldn't that be like supportive or kind? Well, really not. You know, if I'm dealing with a full teenage child who had a full life and and activities and friends and sports and talents and year upon years of experiences together, and, you know, he has a terminal cancer and is now debilitated, Another kid could have brain cancer and still be functioning very well, like feel sick during treatments and certain elements for sure are traumatic for the family. But this kid is getting healthier and better and has a whole life ahead of them if they fully heal. And, you know, if they're one or two, you know, even just the age difference is so different. You cannot compare, oh, one brain cancer is the same as the next. It doesn't work that way, you know. One's leukemia is the same as the next. You know, it's just kind of saying one's childbirth is the same as the next. It's not. They're all so unique and different. And everyone's experience of life and, you know, it's everyone has their own journey and their own life experience, whether it's good times or bad times. So I think that it's a healthy way to sink in the concept that it's, not going to help anyone to make comparisons. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but in defense of the people who are by you through these times, post these times, the more you're around someone, the more conversations you have and the more likely there's for something to come out or be said that isn't helpful or make you sadder. And that's why many people just close off and run away because if they just stay away or keep their mouth shut, they stay safe. But the people who do take the risk to be there, 
we're doing it at the risk of knowing we're going to do something wrong and we might, you know, right. which is what I'm doing by talking to you. Anytime I talk to you, <laughs> I'm taking a risk of like being something you could say on someone else's podcast about me. <laughs> I appreciate your risk taking. I think that's a beautiful thing because you're willing to have a relationship and try. And you're also just the fact that you said like, look, I know I'm taking a risk and I might be saying the or I might say the wrong thing. That itself is a level of awareness. So just even putting that out there and like, you know, if, if someone were to approach me and apologize beforehand in some sense of like, I don't know if this, you know, is helpful or hurtful or I, I really apologize if this is not good for you, but I was wondering this or I wanted to say this, but even just coming into the conversation, recognizing that I might be in a vulnerable position, that I have a lot of grief and triggers and all sorts of things, just entering the conversation in a loving, compassionate, sensitive way, I'm less likely to be triggered by it because I know it's coming from a good place and that the person is already trying to be careful. It's sort of the people that just kind of mouth off or have no idea what's going on and really come out of left field. And so, oh my gosh, I have met so many bereaved mothers and fathers at that, this point that we have, we can create volumes of books about the things people should not do and not say. Sadly, like people are, really are clueless a lot of the time. Can you give us a few examples? Oh boy. <laughs> Okay, so, so number one, don't say, I know how it feels. Yes. <laughs> you said that. Right. Don't say, I know how it feels. That's not going to help. And let's see, from, from just personal experience, when you're visiting for Shiva, do not make it about you. Like, and we learn, we, we should know this from our tradition, like our rabbis and sages say, like, you know, just be silent, just be present, just be there. And yet, People feel uncomfortable and feel like they have to fill the silence at times. And usually what comes out is not helpful. <laughs> and I would say, you know, I have so many different stories, but definitely during Shiva to come up with all of these spiritual ideas or reasonings why my child had to die. You know, well, it was this tikkun for this or this had to happen. And they're coming up with all these stories that they've heard of, like, Please don't, please, <laughs> you know, like, oh, well, this Nishama, like, had to only have Kalev Yisrael breast milk, you know, for excellent amount of time. Like, I'm sorry, that is not helpful to me right now. <laughs> like, it's better to just sit in silence. And we're supposed to be compassionate people. And just to know that someone is there and feeling with you and grieving beside you and senses your pain that sometimes is good enough. You know, you don't have to fill the silence. And, and also for, for people to, to have the sensitivity of just emotionally, you know, how to read the room. You have to have some level of emotional intelligence, whether you walk into a hospital room, whether you walk into a Shiba house, what, wherever you walk into, Having emotional intelligence is so key to knowing how to behave in that situation. 
you know, if someone looks really sad or in pain, it's not helpful to go in and just start telling jokes. Like how is, you know, there's a disconnect there, right? And same thing with a Shiva house. If people are telling funny stories about the deceased or funny stories or having, you know, a more lively conversation to join in on that energetic level, like that makes sense. But to, to start coming in on, on that level of humor, this, when you can sense the room is really somber or people are crying or something like that's just not emotionally intelligent to do that. And also just there, I write blurbs to myself as I process through the grief. And one day I did write a, a little comment to myself that it just sort of like life is triggering, like everyone, everyone alive is triggering. Like I was having a really hard day where it just felt like everything people did and said just caused me more pain. And again, that was just like a moment in time. But, you know, the fact that people really, I think one of the hardships of grieving is that you are really in such a different world in that space. Your world has changed so much. The pain you carry is so real. And to watch people going on their lives, lives as if everything's so easy and smooth and picking up my kids and doing this and doing that and all these fun activities and regular life things that to me, it just felt like so hard to just even connect with the world around me because the grief was so heavy. And, you know, people talking to me or at me as if nothing had changed in my life and ignored the fact that I just buried a child a few weeks or a few months ago, really hurt at times because just to even get out of bed and out of the house and put on clothes and look appropriate and go to the shul or go to an event, that takes a lot of energy out of a, a grieving person. And then to not be met on a level of sensitivity is really hard. I almost felt like I wanted to have like a flashing light on my forehead saying, fragile, handle with care, be, yeah, or not even beware, but just fragile. Like, look, look at how fragile like life is and how my life, I'm in so much pain that I, I carry a lot of weight with me and a lot of grief, like be careful, you know, not, not beware as if I'm some crazy dog, but just be careful, be sensitive, be kind, be loving, you know, how can you come into my space in a way that says, I see you and I care about you. Come into a space with me knowing that I'm going through a lot, but to just ignore my life experience as if it never happened to me felt disrespectful to me and disrespectful to my Yessi. He had a whole life in this community. I would like to end off with something that connected us was that you haven't touched your violin or played your violin in many years. And months after Yassi passed, you wanted to reconnect with that voice within you. You performed for High Lifeline. Can you talk about that a little bit? I will correct that a little bit is I still do. I, I've always been connected to my violin and 
I've been a violin teacher for 25 years. So even in teaching, I still play in order to show and teach. And I have performed at many, um, the number of chuppas I've performed at and events. And so I, music and my violin, is, it has always been a, a part of my life. But when I got into building a family and child rearing, I kind of looked at the performing era of my life as like, okay, that's over for now or put on hold. And I didn't really have a venue of like how to do that as a from woman and also just the busyness of being uh, a mother and wife and all that entails and, and, you know, just scheduling. So I hadn't done really much performing, even though here and there I still would. But violin and, and music, I'm deeply, my soul is deeply connected to music. And while I was taking care of Yessie in Chop Hospital, I would bring one of my violins and I would play for him a lot. I would go around to the rooms on the ICU to families I met and play music for their children. And, and the children and parents just loved it. Like music is therapy. And as I was pre-grieving my Yessie and through the grieving process, playing music as a mode of healing for myself. But we met and I was like, I know there's musicians out there, but I don't know how to connect or I don't know how to get my music out there. I don't know what platform or how to connect with others to play music together. And you're a musician and in involved in the musical art world. And so you kind of opened up new avenues for me, but my violin to me is like another arm. It's like another extension of myself. It's always a part of me. And the High Lifeline team, one of the new friends we made during that time was the director of High Lifeline, Rabbi Surly Freed. And at one point after Yessie passed and we had a conversation and they were organizing a Hanukkah event at the hospital, I said, I'm so happy to come play at the Hanukkah event and the candle lighting. And so I went there. It was only one month after Yessie's passing and I had not been back to the hospital. So it took a little bit of courage for me to go back to the hospital that he fought so valiantly at and passed away in. But I, I was on a mission. That's kind of how I look at my life as we are all on a mission. Like you stay focused. You're on a mission we're here in this world to do chesed, to, to serve our friends, to serve our fellow Jews, to serve the creator. And if you are focused on your mission, everything else goes in, on the back burner. So I absolutely wanted to help out Kai Lifeline. So I played Ma'ot Zor at the candle lighting and I had no idea this was being recorded or anything going on. It just sounded seemed like a really nice small event that several dozen people showed up for and we got to you know hear about sore and, and light the candles and talk about Hanukkah and the you know and and the hospital and it went viral somehow like it just went everywhere and even Mishpacha someone working for Mishpacha magazine heard about the story that my child had passed away just one month before before and I came to 
play music and they were very inspired by the story and and wrote about it in Mishpacha magazine. And yeah, it was a very in- unique experience for me because my grief was still very fresh, but I felt like this was something I needed to do. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing yourself with us. Absolutely. I, I hope that my voice can help others. And I definitely have a unique life story and perspective on life. I could probably talk for hours. I didn't talk so much about my own healing process. You know, I did a a little bit with the music, but you know, it's definitely a passion of mine of trauma healing. And I'm very blessed to have met you and to become friends and to be part of this podcast. So thank you so much. Did you want to add something for the trauma healing? I would just say that the idea of healing is so key to just believe in the potential for our bodies and minds and souls and heart to heal is is so key to the healing experience, just to have hope and belief in the potential to heal. And I believe our creator and his infinite goodness and kindness would not create us without the ability to heal. And we heal in different ways. And, you know, through we've studied so much in the therapy and psychology world, there's so many modes and methods to healing. And it's definitely a passion of mine. And I work on myself constantly and trying to find new ways to to heal my my heart and my soul. And even physically after the traumatic year, I had to physically heal from that. And also as a cancer survivor, like there's a lot of levels of healing. So um, I'm not going to go into all the different modalities for for healing. But I would just say, I think that people who believe in the healing process, and that we're capable as human beings, we are capable of healing, actually enter the world of healing in a much better way. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to feel pain or sorrow or grief, but it means that there's a way to process through and live a whole life. Thank you so much for listening until the end. I am working on a panel for you titled, How Much Do We Need to Know to Feel? I am open to suggestions for personal stories. So if you have one, please reach out. If you would like to support the show, you can share it with a friend or a family member. You can also rate and review it in your podcast app. And of course, you can send me a personal message. I hope you have a good week. Stay safe. See you next time.